0: Great. Glad you're here. It pays to be early because I want to point out a couple of books. Uh, This book can be difficult to find, and I saw that they did have it in the bookstore. Dr. Megan Best is an Australian doctor. The book is called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. I'm trying to remember who publishes this. I don't know what that is. Um, Anyway, this book is fantastic. And if you're thinking through... um, Medical issues, if you're, if you're concerned at all about the cause of life and you want some biblically consistent as well as scientific answers to some of those questions, Dr. Bess has done an excellent job here. I found some videos by her on YouTube as well that are really helpful. She's an excellent lecturer, so if you're working in those areas and you just want to kind of fill things out a little bit, Dr. Megan Best, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Difficult to Find. It's in the bookstore. I recommend you buy it. single best book, uh, most influential book I've read in the last two years is this book. It's called Dignity and Destiny, Humanity in the Image of God by Dr. John Kilner. Uh, Kilner is is looking at what theologians would call imago Dei, or the image of God. It's it's the to my knowledge, it's the only real biblical theology of image of God. Some might dispute that. It's certainly the most current. He's interacting with all the uh, all the theologians, kind of in our camp and outside of our camp, uh, and and thinking about what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I was partway through trying to write something of substance on disability, and um, a brother showed up at my door one day and said, oh, I have this book, I thought you might like it, and I did the, you know, thank you very much, and then started reading it, and then I gave up writing. So uh, because it's so right, and I was so wrong, and I'll try to reflect some of that in our talk today. So Dignity and Destiny by John Kilner. I think if you're working um, in cause of life issues or if uh, you're a pastor who's you're just thinking I'm kind of fuzzy on what it means to be made in the image of God if you're like me and you were told that being made in the image of God means you have relational capacity um, that means that you have um, you know dominionship over the world these kinds of categories that's what image of God means I'm going to suggest to you you're wrong and suggest to you that you uh, firm up your anthropology by reading Dr. Kilner's book. Is that enough of a teaser? All right. Let's pray and then ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, thank you for these dear brothers and sisters. I pray that uh, our time would be profitable. And I pray for the great work of the Holy Spirit to keep Christians like us who've had lunch and sat through another workshop at uh, 245 awake. Uh, So please give grace and mercy to us, Lord, to engage these ideas and to think rightly about all the people you've made. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit of a warning. I'm going to move fast. I have a lot of material I want to cover, so listen quickly. Uh, For the purpose of this talk, I'm going to think primarily about the inclusion of disabled persons in the life of your local church. So the inclusion of persons of disability in the life of your local church as a gauge of the health of your church. And I hope to present to you something of a thermometer by which you may examine your own local church and the health and the vitality of that local church. Here's what I mean by someone who is disabled. This is my definition, nobody else's. And pretty much if you read the literature on disability, nobody can agree on a definition, so I am happy to offer my own. I'm dead serious about that. There's, there's no agreed definition. So here's mine. Someone, uh, someone who is disabled, is someone who, in comparison to the average church member, is limited or impaired in her physical, cognitive, relational, or mental abilities. This may be either visible or invisible, and may include a confluence of two or more of these elements in any one person. So, someone who, in comparison to the average church member, is limited or impaired physically, cognitively, relationally, mentally, maybe visible, maybe invisible. There are large holes in that definition, not the least of which is that it rests on a comparison between the abled and the disabled. However, that seems like the, the functional definition that in which most of us live. And so I'm trying to be as ground level as I can be and suggest that for us who are church leaders and members of churches, this is who we are speaking about. And one of my aims in this talk is to grab the attention of church leaders and members and and give you a vision for something that I think is profoundly deeper than quote-unquote disability ministry. Too many of our Western churches, in my opinion, have bought into the idea of slick services and professionalism the professionalism of the corporate and the celebrity world, if that's what floats your boat, if that's what you love, then you're going to not enjoy my talk. Because not only am I not interested in helping you professionalize your calling, I'm really out to make your life more complicated, more difficult, and slower. (laughs) Welcome to the seminar. (laughs) All right. Let's talk, first of all, about value. My son Will is here. Will, you want to stand up? Will's 17 years old, he's my son. Give him a big round of applause because you're glad he's here. <laughs> All right, I you see to say that. So when Will was born, we were, uh, he was just a little guy crawling around and we were outside in the summertime and one of my neighbors came over and we were talking about Will's disability. Uh, Will was born with something called, and this is ironic, Williams Syndrome. He was named Will before we knew he had Williams syndrome. Williams syndrome is named after Dr. Williams who categorized, cataloged it all. Uh, Will was named after me and my dad and his dad and his dad. So, just so we're clear. Anyway, we're in this conversation with a very nice neighbor who then asked us the question when we were describing his disability, well, don't they have a prenatal test for that? And the obvious implication of that question was, well, clearly, if you could have discovered that there was a disability, you would have ended the pregnancy. And I just remember standing there. I, I was so dumbfounded that someone would say that about my son. My son who was over there playing on the, on the yard. That's my boy. And you are implying that my boy is somehow of less value because he has a disability. When when Will was just a little guy, we attended an event, a social event, for people raising kids with Williams Syndrome. It was a very lovely event. It was very well-intentioned, but I can recall vividly the drive home from that event being just tied in knots in my own spirit because I realized that the same worldview of my neighbor was found in the parents of all those uh, kids with Williams Syndrome. Because the conversations that I was hearing were things like this. Well, you know, the, the, the great thing about people at the Williams Center is they have a lovely smile. They'll brighten up every room. They'll, they'll just make the world a better place. Well, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes they make the world a mess. Because they're human like other humans. And they sin just like you sin. And what was going on there is that these dear parents were, were feeling the need to somehow justify the value of their child by their supposed contribution. They smile nice. Maybe not much, but that's their contribution. Therefore, they are valuable. You know, Will does have a nice smile. There it is. (laughs) But uh, if if that's what justifies your existence... That's a pretty flimsy reason to exist. Looking for ways that people with special needs contribute to the world, it can be a fine enough exercise. But when it becomes the justification for their existence, you've bought into what I would call the utilitarian lie. This idea that human worth is found in supposed contribution. The truth, according to God, is that. People are valuable because they are made in God's image. Value is not tied up in us. It's tied up in him, the author of our lives. It's not in what we bring to society. And the more you see this in your Bible, and the more you you imbibe that as a Christian, the more freeing it becomes to love others. I don't have to justify the existence of anybody. I don't have to justify the existence of my disabled son. I don't need to justify the existence of my abled daughters, They are valuable because they are made in the image of God. I'll prove it to you. Genesis 1, look at verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we're going to condense because we're in a hurry. You know what happens next. Adam and Eve sin, the fall, right? But this alters nothing about the fact that their children, including you and I, are just as much made in the image and likeness of God as Adam and Eve were. We know this because of passages like Genesis 9, 6. After God judges the world with a flood, he bases the prohibition against murder on the fact that mankind are made in the image of God. So this is many, many generations after Adam's fall in Eden, and therefore we can be totally certain... That man is still made in the image of God even after sin has come into the creation. Genesis 9:6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is the justification for capital punishment in cases of first-degree murder. But there's a reason attached to it: whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. After the fall, centuries of sin, the rationale why you may not take the life of another human being is that human being is of such great value because of the fact that they have been made in the image and in the likeness of God. In other words, when it comes to being made in God's image, nothing changes outside of Eden. John Frame, in a great little book called Medical Ethics, writes this, Scripture never defines the image of God in terms of specific qualities or abilities. Instead, Scripture teaches that human beings as such are individually created in God's image and that a human being is anyone who belongs to the race of Adam. Thus, everyone who belongs to the race of Adam bears God's image because being the image of God is the scriptural ground for having the rights of a person. We can say that Scripture equates being God's image with being a person. That scriptural understanding of image of God and of person can raise difficult questions. Precisely how, we may ask, is an anencephalic... I can't ever say that word. Uh, Anencephaly is when you're born essentially without brain. So how can that child be made in God's image? In what sense is that child a person? Although we may not be able to answer such questions in Genesis 9-6, which I just read for you, and James 3-9, which I didn't, but you can look at it, Scripture commands us to respect the image of God and the context of those verses absolutely exclude any attempt to distinguish persons from non-persons within the human race. So as a Christian, you can look at every single person, every single human, and say, in the words of Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Value. Question. What about disability? You knit me together in my mother's womb. Did God miss a stitch with a little girl with Patau syndrome who's going to be born with uh, severe physical disabilities? all kinds of internal organ issues and will never live past maybe 12, 13 months. God make a mistake? The devil get in the way? Did God not sew that little girl together? Well, the short answer is no. God has his own purposes in mind when he creates our friends with disabilities. Listen, uh, Exodus chapter 4 verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? It's not even a rhetorical question. The Lord answers it. Is it not I, the Lord? Those are the words of God to the disabled Moses. Moses who seems to have some form of speech impediment. But those words hold true for all of us. God did not make a mistake when he made the disabled. He did not momentarily lose focus in his creative work or or find his power somehow eclipsed by some interfering evil force. At no point does the Bible teach that the disabled lack or lost the image of God. Here's what it means for your church. When that family with the severely autistic boy comes to you, dares, dares to come to your church, you are given, you are being served a profound opportunity on a silver platter. You can look at them like the disciples looked at the blind man in John 9 and his family Sin did he do or what sin did his parents do that he was born blind? Or or you can look at that family as Jesus sees them. They are all people made in the image of God, including the son with severe autism. Therefore, your goal as a church member is not to seek out some special gift or savant ability in the child that the church can profit by or celebrate. Your goal, this young man's, this person's value does not proceed from some supposed contribution. See, the same philosophy creeps into the church. The Christian response is to celebrate him because he is made in the image of God. Full stop. You are valuable because you are made in the image of God. If the foundation of your relationship with that autistic boy is anything else, you will likely be either condescending, awkward, or mean. Condescension is probably the single most typical Christian response to disability. You assume that physical and cognitive limitations mean a person is not fully developed, so you default to treating them like you would treat a child. Should read uh, disability literature written by the disabled. One of my favorite titles is "Stop Calling Me Buddy." Hey, buddy! That kind of condescension is often rooted in a failure to properly value the person as one made in the image of God. So, condescension creeps into the church. Fear. Fear replaces love and and then awkwardness reigns. You start to think carefully about what you're going to say to that child or do I touch her? Not touch. Do I make eye contact? Not eye contact. You get the internal panic thing going. I'm going to do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing. You worry about how other people are watching you talk to that child. And so you stop engaging that child and you're more concerned because you've got all your fear of man stuff going on about what everybody else in church thinks about how you're talking to that child. You get so worked up that you're going to find something, anything else to do other than engage with that human being. Condescension, awkwardness sometimes we can be downright mean there's a, a large selection of proverbs that run like this this is proverbs 17:5 whoever mocks the poor poor in proverbs uh, might be translated the destitute it's just not it, we we think in these economical categories but it's it's the destitute people that are the downtrodden and the least of society whoever mocks the destitute insults his maker He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. When we mock the disabled, like I used to do in junior high, when I did my shtick about the retarded kid, when you mock the least of these, the poor, the destitute, we're insulting the Maker. We're we're weird. Aren't we as humans? We're often mean to the people we just don't understand. The answer to condescension, the answer to awkwardness, the answer to meanness is love. And it is love that starts with an acknowledgement of worth. It is a love that springs from a deep well of truth that glories in this. The value of any person proceeds from who made them. You believe that? Or are you falling prey to Satan's lie that disability means diminished worth? Pastor, can I speak to you? Just listen. You don't have to look it up. Just listen to 1 Peter 5 again. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Well, when Peter wrote to the pastors of churches scattered throughout the known world, he gave them this one beautiful command. You could translate it this way Shepherd the flock of God that is your lot. Your lot. The wise pastor understands that God is the one in charge of his church's membership role. And when you grasp the significance of image of God as well as the providence of God, and you're considering that, God's providence and who becomes a member or a part of your church, you are then freed up to value every member, not based on what they might do for the ministry, based on the fact of the one who made them. I don't think we can say we stand for the cause of life unless that includes every life, regardless of ethnicity, age, gender, or ability. People are valuable because God made them. People are valuable because God made them. That's our starting place for every relationship. It's our starting place for every disabled person we meet. God has a heart for the vulnerable. Let me read you an account. Uh, I have hundreds, not hundreds, I have lots of these, people that have written and other things I've found online, about people trying to go to church with disabled family members. It's a quote. When my son was four, we received a postcard that advertised a local church that was starting a special needs ministry. The next week we went, so excited to get back to church, so excited to get back to church. When we picked up our son, we were told, don't ever bring him back. What was his crime? He kept running off during story time instead of sitting. The other children had physical disabilities. I guess my son had the wrong kind of disability for the church. I've got a page full of those. Statistics vary, but no one doubts, the majority of families that include a member with special needs just don't go to church. Christian families. They might be struggling with shame. Um, Will, can I tell a story about you? Okay, so when Will was... Uh, people with Williamson Williams have a love for music and a strange, wonderful affinity to music. And we used to sing that song a lot in our church called the Gospel Song. Holy God in love, we you know that one? It's kind of a minor key, melancholy song, beautiful song. And until Will was six, seven... 10? We'll stop at 10 so as not to embarrass the 17 year old. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he couldn't hear that song without weeping. And, he's, and, and just the, the music, the thought of the, the gospel, the truth that it contained, all of it, it just would, and my wife would usher him out of the service, calm him down, bring him back again. That happened every time we sang it. Every single time. You don't have to be sorry. <laughs> Hey, this isn't an interactive, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Alex will tell you what I mean. Uh, <laughs> so, this would happen every time. And, and it took a while. I mean, we had to get over our own fears, right? Like, they must be terrible parents though. So why does that boy always cry? Like, we didn't love it, but we loved him. We still do. <laughs> you might be ashamed of your child. You might not be able to physically get away into the building. You ever think that a family raising a child that's constantly in a wheelchair, do you understand the, the amount of work it can take a family to get that child to your church? Maybe you're, the families aren't coming to your church because they, they just don't think they can take any more stairs. Uh, yeah, families with special needs, they can get a little oversensitive to the stair thing, but trust me, it is there. They're like daggers in the back of the head. That gets old quick. some cases Christians have been asked to leave churches because of their disabled family member lots of Christians have been asked to leave churches because of their disabled family member once in a while somebody will say to a family would you please leave our church that happens sometimes mostly what happens is this you know I'm just not sure that we can really supply what you need which is a subtle boot out the door I'm sure that most of us shudder at the idea of asking a family to not come back or to leave their disabled member at home, which is also a common request, or take them to the lobby, or maybe we could build a special room for you. That happens a lot. I'm saying if the disabled are to be valued because they're made in the image of God then your reaction to their attendance at your church ought to be joy and modesty. Let me explain what I mean. You should open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at this point, And I'm going to walk you through this, what I call the inclusion staircase. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians... He included many corrections, a lot of them having to do with this favoritism and preferencing that was going on in the church. So one says, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, that stuff. And selfishness at the Lord's Supper, you know, we'll eat first and then you eat. And, and then even this whole thing about we've got, we're super gifted, so we'll do our thing and you aren't as gifted as us, so you're not as important. 1 Corinthians 12, to me is an incredibly relevant text to the issue of the weak. And in this case, as I'm looking at it, the disabled persons in your churches. I don't think Paul was thinking about disabled people when he wrote 1 Corinthians 12. I want to be clear about that. So I'm going to try and exegete the passage and then apply it to the disabled. But I think the principles of 1 Corinthians 12 do apply. And for the sake of argument, this it's very complex, but for the sake of argument, I'm only going to talk about disabled persons Christians. So I'm of the conviction that The cognitively disabled and, of course, the physically disabled can express repentance and faith and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from their sins. And I'm going to assume that you have some ability in your church to make them full-fledged members in your church. So I'm talking about the Christians who are disabled and are in your church. I'm not talking about people that are attending your church and aren't Christians yet. Or in, in some extreme cases, it's very difficult to know what God is doing there because of significant cognitive Disability. If there is a little bit of time, you might want to ask me about that, but hopefully not because I don't have great answers. But um, let's just look at 1 Corinthians 12. You, you follow this with me. It's like a nine step, I think it is nine. Um, nine steps up the staircase here. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at them, and then we'll go back and start at the bottom and look at them one more time quickly. So step one, each one a principle. Step one, we are one body, all right? We are one body. This is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. So while it is true that we meet in separate local churches, Jesus is not a polygamist, right? He has only one bride, the church, not the churches, the church. And all those who are saved are a part of the church, the single church, illustrated here by Paul as a body made up of many different members or parts. And just as your human body has arms and legs and each are part of your one body, so every Christian is regarded as a member of the body of Christ. Now, our local churches are local manifestations of the one body, and they so they reflect that concept. Each local church has all the necessary members to make up the whole body. So we are one body. That's step number one. Step number two. God decides who makes up the body. God decides who makes up the body. Verse 18. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he Chose. So the body, which is made up of many parts, is arranged by God. God determines who becomes a part of the body. More than that, God also determines where each one fits in the body. Someone's got to be a hand. Somebody else has to be the foot. These are not volunteer positions. It's like being here at the Gospel Coalition. You are volunteered <laughs> Uh, I thought that was funny. Um, I've been voluntold all week. Uh, So these are not volunteer positions. They're assigned by God. God saves us. And then, as the text says, each one of them as he chose So Paul is stressing here that the overall composition of the body is not some Frankensteinian melding together of mismatched members. It is rather God composing the body. You could translate that word blending. He is blending people together with a very particular goal in mind. As an artist blends her paints to get just the right color, so God blends humans to make just the right church. And this is true on both the grand scale and also true in local manifestations of the church. God is blending things, blending people together with an objective in mind. So we are one body. Number two, God decides who makes up the body. Number three, the body needs weak members. (laughs) When you live in an age like ours that celebrates strength and health and success and vitality, it comes as something of a shock that the church needs weak members. The Corinthian church had a problem. There were some super gifted members there, right? Members who were using their gifts in very visible and out there, powerful, abusive even ways, and they had stopped viewing their gifts as a way to give to others and started to see their gifts as a way to make much of themselves. And predictably some of the members of that church started to feel like they had no reason to stay in that church because they, can't, they couldn't compete with the superstars. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, you know, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, just an ear. That would not make it any less a part of the body. I think there's a note of despair here. Here's a person in the body who feels like, I'm not needed because I can't contribute anything. I'm just an ear, not an eye. I'm I'm not like those super gifted dudes. And so these vulnerable ones, these feet, if you like, are looking at the hands, the super gifted ones, and they're saying to whoever's going to listen, you know what, I don't really belong here, I'll just slip out, I'm going to disassociate because i got nothing to contribute. And apparently value's all based on contribution. There are people in your church who, when they compare themselves to those they see as superior, they start to feel like they don't belong. Thankfully, you can't amputate yourself from the body of Christ. As difficult as it might be for the weaker parts of the body, God has sovereignly composed them into the body and what he joins together, let no man separate. God knows that every local manifestation of the body of Christ needs weak members. Number four, to be a body, there must be diversity. To be a body, there must be diversity, verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged, composed the members of the bo- in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. So the idea of a person existing as a, as a solitary eye is meant to sound absurd. You're just trying to imagine that wasn't like in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when Peter lopped off Malchus' ear and the ear is lying there in the dirt that everybody goes, there's Malchus. No, they said there's Malchus' ear before it gets reattached. So the idea that one person or, or one type of people could be the body, that the ear is the body, that's absurd. And so if your local church... Is made up of only white, middle class, healthy, wealthy, typically developed people. It's a giant ear. It's not the body. If you're if you're a church planner and you're thinking, I'm gonna do you know the homogenous principle or whatever it is, is that milk? I don't know, was that was that what it's called? The homogenous principle? Homogeneous? I can't say it. However, it is. Where you're just going to build your church about, you know, this, everybody that's like me. I would like to talk to you later. A healthy human body, the church and, and a healthy human body are the same in this way it's a unified diversity. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. An ear can't be the body. It needs an ear, it needs a hand, it needs the head, it needs the knees. You get the idea. To be a body, there must be diversity. That's number four. Number five, in the church, nobody can declare anybody dispensable. I'd like to repeat that. In the church of Jesus Christ, Nobody can declare anybody dispensable. 1 Corinthians 12, 21, I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. There is not a single member of Christ's body that is unnecessary or disposable. No local church has the right to reject Anyone, because that person appears to them to be superfluous. The church can put a person out of membership for unrepentant sin, but never for a perceived lack of contribution. If Jesus died for someone and put him in his church, then he is needed. How do we know? Because he's there. Nobody can declare anybody dispensable. Step number six, in the church, the people who appear most dispensable are actually the most indispensable. I'm not making this up. The people who appear most dispensable are actually the most indispensable. Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. (laughs) Try to live your life without a big toe. It is a weaker part of the body that is easily forgotten about, ignored, until you've had it removed. At some point, we begin to see the vital importance of the big toe. It is most indispensable. The same is true for virtually all of our internal organs. How often do you ponder your healthy, vital organs? Probably not a whole lot. You don't sit there thinking, is it beating? Is it beating? Is it beating? Is it beating? Is it it digesting? Is it digesting? Is it digesting? You're just, you're doing life until something goes wrong. And then you suddenly wake up to the meaning of the word vital in vital organs. Just because a part of our body operates in the background and is easily taken for granted does not make it dispensable. God has composed the body so that the seemingly most expendable, unnecessary parts are actually the most essential. It's true in every case, and it's true in your church. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Step number seven, the less honorable members of our church must be honored. Explain what I mean, but the less honorable members of our church must be honored. So the latter half of that verse, and on those parts, verse 22, on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Now how exactly do we honor the less honorable parts of the human body? It seems to me that what Paul's thinking about here is something like the torso. In comparison to the face or the hands that, that remain uncovered and allow us to function in society, do our work, relate, express ourselves generally, Just (laughs) double-checking, torsos are covered. That's a favor to everybody. (laughs) And since he goes on to talk about what the reproductive organs, that's where he's going next, these less honorable parts that he's talking about in verse 22 are any part of the body judged by, we'll say, good society to be better covered than uncovered. So a man in a bathing suit isn't necessarily a dishonorable image unless, of course, he shows up to the office dressed like that. It's it's dishonorable. It's not appropriate to come to work bare-chested and barefoot, and therefore we cover up for the good of others and to keep our jobs. So in the church, there are members. Paul is saying, you've got to track with me here, Paul is saying, what, the less honorable members of our church must be honored. So in the church, there's members that we must honor by Covering their dishonor. This means we are to elevate the worth, the value of those brothers and sisters who are easily forgotten and overlooked. The less honorable members, the ones with the less public gifts, are to be honored in the church. The covering that Paul implies here is not shuffling people, our less honorable church members, out of sight into the basement. Not at all. What do clothes do? Just as clothes make the torso more attractive. So the stronger members of the church will look for ways to, quote-unquote, dress up the weaker members of the church, thus drawing attention to them in the best sense of that idea. Step number eight. The unpresentable Christians in our church must be treated with modesty. The unpresentable Christians in our church must be treated with modesty. So the next section in that verse, verse 22, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So unpresentable parts, frankly, it just means your private parts. Genitalia. When we cover our private parts, we honor them by treating them with modesty. It would be, let's be blunt, what Paul's argument is blunt. It would be dishonorable to parade around naked. And it is in this sense our unpresentable parts actually receive more honor than the presentable parts. Covering our sexual members with clothing dignifies them. Paul is saying it's the duty here of the more prominent members, particularly those with the speaking gifts. It's the duty of the more prominent members to protect and to honor the members that would be exposed if, for instance, if you dragged them to the front of the church and told them to preach a sermon. He's already said that these members are are more vital than the members with the superior gifts, pastors. And those members are deserving of a greater honor than the big shots that we typically praise. Now he insists that these stronger members need to ensure the weaker members are not shamed or dishonored in any way. So in a local church, no one must ever conclude that anybody is an appendix. It is the mission of every member and the stronger members in particular to protect and love the weaker and help them to see their authentically vital place in the body. And the way to do that is explained in the final step. Number nine, the weakest members must contribute for the body to be one. The weakest members must contribute for the body to be one. Verse 26, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It is impossible for the weakest member of the body to serve Unless the stronger members of the body are willing to be served. A mouth may decide it no longer needs the lungs, but it will soon discover how foolish that is. Without those unseen lungs, it will be impossible for the mouth to speak. The weaker, the unseen member of the body is indispensable. If if your church allows a separation to grow between the out there gifted and then the behind the scenes gifted, then the body is going to become dysfunctional. One of the essential foundations to true church unity is that local body learning how to allow all the members to serve one another. Now, I want to move from the relationship between We'll say the typically developed super gifted Christian and the typically developed not so gifted Christian to the relationship between abled believers and disabled believers. Let's climb those nine steps and just apply it. Your church, that family walks in with a kid with whatever disability, whatever syndrome, diagnosed, undiagnosed. Step number one. We're one body. A disabled Christian is a part of the body. I will argue they are a full fledged member if you have membership in your local church. Step two God decides who makes up the body. God then is the one who put this disabled Christian in my local church. Praise God that he did. Step number three the body needs weak members. That means if the physical structure, or hear me pastors, the ministry structure of our church makes it impossible for the disabled Christian to fully participate in the life of the church, then we are in sin. In fact, it might mean that the slickest, most put together church may very well be the most unhealthy church. The body needs weak members. Number four, to be a body there must be diversity. If there are no disabled people in your church, then I would argue that's a problem since 22% of Canadians are disabled. That means that you are not reaching, from your local church, 22% of this nation's population. Question you may wanna ask pastor is, 22% of my church disabled. You might say, well, you know, um, God is sovereign. Yes, he is. And here's what he says. Lord, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. You love the sojourner, therefore. Israel, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy ten seventeen. 17. How about Psalm 68, 5? Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Hosea fourteen three, in you the orphan finds mercy. 1 Timothy 5, honor widows who are truly widows. James 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Therefore, as much as we acknowledge the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, we are right to expect that biblical churches will be skewed toward the weak. God favors the weak. He's the one with the heart for the orphan. He's the one with the heart for the weak. He's the one who says, don't speak ill of that poor person or you speak ill of me. Step five, in the church, nobody can declare anybody dispensable. No head can say to the feet, you don't contribute here, please go away, you're not needed. No pastor can say to the disabled member, you don't contribute here, please go away, you're not needed. The disabled Christian and all his baggage belongs to the church. There is not a single member of Christ's body that is unnecessary or disposable. No local church has the right to reject anyone because it appears to them that person is extra, unneeded. And that includes every precious member of your church who lives with disability. Nobody can say anybody's dispensable. Number six. In the church, the people who appear most dispensable are actually the most indispensable. Your local church is lacking something essential without disabled members. That's, that's a truth that has to be trumpeted over and over again. Think about the culture we live in. When celebrityism creeps into the life of the church, what are we doing? We are assigning value based on contribution. Are you more excited that a Toronto Maple Leaf got converted than your friend in a wheelchair? Are you? We think things like Good looks and charisma and leadership we think these things are 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 bringing some sort of value something that's going to really advance the cause of god now and implicitly we are teaching by that that non-celebrities the 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 non-contributors by our definition are people of less value that is utilitarianism that's the little nazi inside of you calling out step seven the less honorable members of our church must be honored. They're to be honored. This is exactly the opposite of the partiality being shown in many churches. What did James say? Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For a man, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, man, nothing changes, huh? If that guy comes walking in and a poor man, the destitute man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there or you can sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, is not God chosen has not, would you hear this, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. I'll step on some toes here, but then that's why these, that's why we, these are breakouts. They don't matter as much, so you don't have to... Um, It could be that a lot of our, quote-unquote, disability ministry is merely a baptized way of dishonoring the disabled, a kind of Christian favoritism. Because if your goal is simply to get some vocal people out of the main show so that we can get on with our production, then you have not understood 1 Corinthians twelve. Who, you tell me, who would be considered more less honorable in a local church than a disabled believer? And it is the duty of that church to honor the less honorable. Step eight, the unpresentable Christians in our church must be treated with modesty. So we honor the most vulnerable by covering them, not not shooing them into a corner or a a ministry, but having a love for them that covers a multitude of sins and sounds and sticky situations. (laughs) Man, oh man, they come. And it's it's the church that has a love that says, we accept you even if we don't really understand what's happening right now. You've done work in the disability community. You know there's a lot of just like, wow, don't know what's going on now. We're, we're careful for them. We're protective of them. We are patient with them. And that helps to make them accepted and cared for members of the body. Some areas, some areas of the body, right, the human body, are treated with greater attention by being clothed. And it's in this sense that we are treating it, that part of our body, Modestly. God goes so far as to say, give greater honor to these weaker members of the body so that they are, in his estimation anyway, on par with the dignified, the visible members. That means that the deaf member of your church is just as valuable as the preacher of your church. One is no more dispensable than the other. Do you believe that? And it's the duty of the church to demonstrate that and how they treat the deaf member. She must be treated with a kind of respect that covers the weakness. This is one of many examples in your Bible where God declares something to be true and then expects us to make it a reality in our experience. So, a declarative truth and an experiential truth may not be the same thing. Cannot just assume that because we read it in our Bibles, it's so in our churches. So our unpresentable parts are to be treated with greater modesty. In the realm of disability, that means we learn to adjust what works for the typical population in order to accommodate those with special needs. Let me be clear. This is not affirmative action. This is a gospel issue. The church is one place where even the most deeply affected person will be looked upon as valuable and treated with respect. And when we grasp the significance of all human beings being made in the image of God, then we're free from judging worth by contribution, whether it's looks or tithe potential or leadership potential. And we're just enabled then to to move forward in love. That love will cover up and clothe our disabled brothers and sisters in such a manner that they are made the most dignified and honored members of our assembly. Praise be unto God. Last step, the weakest members must contribute for the body to be one. This final step is what shows a church has grasped the significance of this passage. The weakest members of the church are not there to be entertained, babysat, they are in that local body to serve, to minister. God has not blended the disabled into your membership to gain you public accolades. He has put them there to serve you, which means the disabled Christian is called to have the same care for the other church members. And that means they have to be given an opportunity to do that. Consider your church's oldest most feeble, most disabled members. And you can look at them with very good intentions and say, you know, I'm feeling pretty Christian today. So um, I'm actually going to take that old guy out for lunch after church. And that would be a lovely thing. Feeling pretty Christian today. I think I'm going to start a program for, I'm going to offer to sit with that family's disabled kids so they can just have some time of worship. That would be a wonderful blessing to them. A wonderful thing. For that hour, hour and a half on a Sunday, great. But if you keep them out of your life and you keep them out of your home, if you avoid real relationship with them, if you fail to believe that they may be more gifted than you in certain areas, if you reject the truth that you need them to serve you in order for your church to work, then you will always keep those people on the margins of church life. The weakest members must contribute. And just as you cannot tell your toe to no longer help you walk, you cannot be so arrogant as to say or to imply that you are above having to be served by your disabled Christian friend. Nor can you create church structures that make contribution functionally impossible the unsentimental truth is this you need I need we need our disabled brothers and sisters Jesus put them in his body to serve us there can be no reciprocal one another if one of the others is somehow blocked from serving us in return if if we're going to rejoice and suffer with them How can we do that if we have ostracized or marginalized them? If that's what's happening in your church, then your body life is anemic, it's deficient, and you're not one. You're not unified. The weak in your church may benefit from a ministry aimed to serve them, but that's not what they need most of all. What they need is a way to serve you. I'm going to stop there, take one or two questions, and leave off Seven more pages. I have a yes, sir. how do we our How do we How do we do it? Um, I would say it will be different in every case. So I think you do it the way you do it the typically developed. How how do they serve you? You get to know them, you build relationship. Um, if If you're a pastor of a church and you understand that it's your responsibility to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, then the elders of that local church are tasked of finding ways and equipping our disabled friends to serve in the life of a body. I want to be really blunt with you. I think that's really hard to do in some cases. In some cases, it's really easy. My son's grown up in the church, and he's just kind of found ways to serve in the life of the church. God saved Will a couple of years ago. He was baptized. He's a member of the church. And so like all baptized members of our church, he serves within the church. We have other, I have another sister in my church who I love dearly. Um, because of some physical limitations, especially recently, it's become more and more difficult for her to have places to serve. But I think part of that is the members of my church going to visit her when she's sitting alone in a room because she broke her ankle and just sitting with her and talking with her and getting to know her and letting her um, be a vehicle of God's grace to them as she has been to me so many times.